Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got a great show this week. We have a compelling discussion on social media, speech, and the challenge of content moderation at scale with Sarah T. Roberts, Jamil Jaffer, Kate Klonick, and Tarleton Gillespie. But first, we're going to talk with my partners on this podcast, Romy Geller, a student and researcher in the Center for Media Engagement at UT Austin, and Tech Policy Press co-founder Brian Jones about news they have been following this week. Okay, good morning, Brian and Romy. Morning. Good morning. Romy, what are you reading this week? So BuzzFeed reported yesterday that Instagram is exploring a version of its site designed for kids under 13. The head of Instagram, Adam Missouri, later confirmed this, tweeting that kids are increasingly asking their parents to join apps like Instagram. They're looking into making a version of Instagram where parents have more control over what their kids see. So immediately, some people raised concern over this product and cited Facebook's Messenger Kids, which was a product that Facebook released in 2017. But in 2019, a design flaw ultimately led to children entering group chats with unapproved strangers, even though Facebook later said that the flaw only affected a small number of chats. So some people are wondering how safe is this version really going to be? So it's kind of like what could go wrong, right? Yeah, exactly. Like how how much do we trust Facebook slash Instagram to do this properly? Um, As someone who was 13 less than a decade ago, my initial reaction was, that this may lead to kids naturally transitioning to Instagram earlier than they normally would. I could broadly see a kid joining Instagram for kids and then not wanting to be at the Instagram kids table and then joining the main platform. Priya Kumar, who is a researcher from the University of Maryland, also brought up a good point um, in a BuzzFeed article that this would normalize social media for kids earlier than it normally would. And it would normalized idea of social connections has to be like monetized. So as parents, Brian and Justin, what do you you guys think about this? Well, I'm interested in the parallels to past kind of industries that have sought to market to young people. You know, if you look at the way the tobacco industry, which also sold an addictive product, you know, used to operate, they, they would frequently target younger and younger individuals, um, both with messaging and and kind of product sales campaigns until those types of things were made illegal. And I, I think that's a, a key thing. We don't know yet how addictive these services are, but it seems to be a real problem. And I'd be interested to know, you know, what additional research is going to be done uh, to determine the degree to which kids get addicted to social media. In addition to the addiction, I think that we're still learning a lot about the societal uh, benefits and harms of social networks to preteens and teenagers and what that looks like in terms of, you know, social interactions and both strengthening them, but also the potential for cyberbullying or all sorts of unhealthy comparisons and really being left out in, at an age where, you know, that is already a concern, that fear of missing out that social media companies are Gin, gin towards creating is really amplified for individuals at that age that haven't realized yet that most of the time, you know, that's that's not a signal worth paying attention to. 
a lot of people were mentioning that Facebook's having a hard time kind of controlling cyberbullying in older teens. So taking on younger teens and especially kids as young as like 13 and younger seems uh, like a heavy burden. There has been some evidence that social media causes childhood depression. You know, I feel like we have to look at, at those, those questions quite a lot more uh, to determine the health factor. Of course, these things are true for adults as well. All right. Thanks, Remy. Brian, what are you looking at this week? I've been paying attention to something, again, happening out in California. This time, it is that the Attorney General has updated regulations strengthening the enforcement around something called dark patterns. Now, this is something that you probably have come across before. If you've ever tried to cancel a subscription or delete your account, it's a user interface designed to trick and frustrate users to manipulate and allow for deceptive interfaces to get to unintended outcomes so that you end up sharing or taking actions that you didn't necessarily mean to take. This newly approved regulation goes into effect in 30 days, and it doesn't ban all dark patterns, but those that are going to have, quote, the substantial effect of subverting or impairing a consumer's choice to opt out, end quote, of schemes where their personal data is being sold. So language such as double negatives, don't not sell my personal information, or forcing users to click through or listen to reasons why they should not submit a request to opt out before confirming their request, or requiring users to search or scroll through text of a privacy policy to locate the mechanism for submitting a request to opt out. So it's a really big change. It's something that other states are also considering. It's California happens to be the first one, but Washington has introduced a similar ban. And there's been talk of a federal law to do something similar, but to allow for regulation of these types of practices, which are really design practices to get to an end result that tricks consumers, I think it's a, a, a fantastic step towards both protecting privacy, but also empowering consumers to understand what they actually are selecting when they go to take these steps. So all of those click-through screens, when I try to unsubscribe from an email I never signed up for, you know, hopefully those will be addressed in this. It should. And it's, you know, it's really fascinating because there's some fantastically evil ways of doing this, right? It's a, it's a really fascinating dark art. And the fact that California and other states are realizing what's happening here is a fantastic step to at least level the playing field for individuals that don't have time or the ability to spot all these dark patterns. So if you're user experience experts that are listening out there, you know, there's a new law to pay attention to in California. We know that all of you are committed to best practices as it were, but uh, something else to kind of bring to the attention of the executives on your team who want to push you a little bit more towards uh, trapping people in mazes. Well, thanks, Brian. Thanks, Remy. Absolutely. No problem. I teach a graduate course at NYU Tandon School of Engineering in the Integrated Digital Media Program 
and in the NYU Tisch Interactive Telecommunications Program, or ITP, called Technology, Media, and Democracy. It's a partnership of multiple schools, and this year I'm teaching alongside Moore Naman at Cornell Tech and David Carroll at the New School. In a session earlier this month, we had a discussion on the challenges of content moderation at scale with four great experts on the key issues, including Tarleton Gillespie, a principal researcher at Microsoft Research New England and an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Communication at Cornell University, Kate Klonick, assistant professor at law at St. John's University Law School and an affiliate fellow at the Information Society Project at Yale Law School, Jamil Jaffer, the executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, and Sarah T. Roberts, Assistant Professor of Information Studies at UCLA. I asked Sarah the lead question, why do we moderate content? I think that's a, you know, such a, such a critically important question and a question that's not asked enough. So I really appreciate the ability to kind of set the stage a bit uh, by, by reflecting on that. When, uh, when I first became aware of this practice back in 2010, this practice being um, commercial content moderation, which is different from other forms of content moderation, such as community management, self-organized moderation, um, a whole host of other things that had gone on really since the beginning of the social internet. When I first became aware of this particular type of phenomenon, which is the um, sort of like, you know, at scale, uh, for pay, professionalized process, all of the concomitant policies and all of the, um, the labor practices that go into making up the phenomenon of commercial content moderation, it, it was the question that was, was also propelling me. Number one, why is it done? And number two, why is it done in the way in which it is being done, which is uh, typically obfuscated or hidden? frequently outsourced um, and at maybe geographic, but certainly organizational remove, uh, under-discussed and under-acknowledged. This uh, being again, 2010, we've come through a chronology here and we're now in 2021 where content moderation is something most people have heard of, but back then I can assure you they had not. And so as someone who, you know, today, I've been on the internet almost 30 years, which is funny because I got on when I was five. But I'm um, Chang. Thank you, Kate. Kate, Kate. Kate is laughing. Thank you, Kate. She's used to my cheese. Um, but it, I've been on the internet for almost 30 years. And at the time when I came across this phenomenon, therefore almost 20, and I had worked in IT, I had been around the block and I was doing this PhD. And I, I said, now, how come this is the first time I'm hearing about this, right? And that in itself was suspect. How come nobody I talked to knew about the process, knew about the phenomenon, knew about the need? And if they did think, think it through when I pushed them to think about it, they said, and these are the smartest guys in the room and the smartest women and the smartest other folks in the room. They would say, huh, I never thought of that. Don't computers do that? Okay. So now this sets the stage for why commercial content moderation and why hidden and why done by people. And, and I'll hit the first one right now and we'll come around to the rest of them. But the answer for the first one is actually fundamentally important to understanding why we're all gathered here talking about it. And it is the fact that within the context of the United States, social media companies have been given a certain uh, sort of blanket, different status uh, in terms of their legal responsibility for content. 
whereas other companies can be fined or sued or held responsible for material they may broadcast or publish or um, promote or, or, or whatever. There's a host of other, other regimes and paradigms. This particular group of companies has a carve-out, and that carve-out allows them to use the function of adjudicating, looking at and reviewing, thinking about the material on their platform from the perspective of what benefits them first and foremost. And that's what is distinct and interesting about this phenomenon. In 2021, is content moderation, commercial content moderation of social, you know, major social media platforms used also to protect the public, to meet the demands of other legal regimes like outside of the United States, to avoid PR issues, to do a whole host of things? Yes. But first and foremost, this was a function developed by the firms to triage, address, have a mechanism to control, both to disallow, but also to uh, very consciously allow content. In other words, it's good to think of it as a valve. And on and off, you can dial it up, you can dial it down as needed. It's dynamic, it changes. Why did the companies need this phenomenon? Why did they need a host, a legion of workers to make decisions about content if they have a carve out from legal responsibility? Well, the reason is because social media platforms have a very important, very lucrative uh, clientele. And the clientele is not anyone on this Zoom. The clientele is other businesses. Social media companies are advertising firms, data aggregators, et cetera. They do everything they do in order to be advertising companies. And they therefore have a relationship management issue between themselves and the companies which they solicit for their advertising dollars. And their first fundamental concern was to manage those relationships. And in so doing, therefore had to manage the type of material that could or could not be found at a given time on their platform. Therefore, the first definition you need to think about when you think about commercial content moderation is that it is a brand management function. Everything else it does, and now it does a whole bunch of things. It's like the kitchen sink, right? It does a whole bunch of things now. Those are knock-on effects. Those are add-ons. Those are afterthoughts. Those are things that we now have to attend to because laws and, and uh, social norms and user expectations have changed. But fundamentally, they are about... Um, not offending Pillsbury, not making, um, I don't know, uh, uh, Johnson and Johnson mad, you know, not, you know, pissing off Oreo cookie by putting a, a horrific video or a bit of content next to them. So this is how that started. Because guess what, as one uh, executive from a from a digital media news media company said to me, very dryly while sipping a glass of red wine, if you open a hole on the internet, it gets filled with shit. <laughs> and I will stop there. Carlton, um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll turn it to you. Is it maybe to, to add to, uh, detract from, or uh, otherwise uh, build on Sarah's uh, answer yeah. there? Yeah, so, I mean, Sarah's absolutely right. If we're trying to understand how we got to the point we're at, right, we have to understand sort of how platforms see their business. I completely agree. So let me take a... Let me take a long view perspective that, that situates that as well. If we have been 
living inside of a story that the internet is something special and radically different from other media that came before it. Uh, and that specialness was something about openness, freedom, getting to do what you want, but then somehow that also producing something like community, democracy, goodness, revolution, whatever. There was no theory about exactly why that was going to happen. Um, but that somehow this was a radically different experiment. And there are differences, but I think the sort of media historian in me wants to say, like, whenever someone tells you something is new, you say, like, where have we seen this before? So like a real basic answer to why is there moderation is that we are always struggling with the idea that we live in an information landscape that was not produced by us. Now, whether that's by newspapers or by television networks or by, you know, websites or by citizen actors posting to platforms, the details differ, but the institutions that build up that provide information for us always have to dance this complicated dance. The first is that they have to offer what they think their readers want and also what they need. And they get sort of dinged if they go too far on the other hand. But even more than that, they have to sort of like say they're doing something good, but they very much have to make money if they're, if they're a private corporation or justify themselves. And they always have to tell a story that the information you're getting is not a product of what they did, but it's something like the most important, it's the most new, it's the most entertaining, it's the most whatever, right? So what I just said could describe television networks, it could describe magazines, it could describe radio stations. They're always struggling with this particular balance. And in the US and the West, particularly this balance about making money while also somehow serving this thing that's better than just uh, you know, sugar. So uh, the story about whether intermediaries make adjustments to the information we get, the answer is of course, yes. Like don't, let's not pretend that we were ever gonna live in a world where we were in a sort of like universe of unencumbered information. We're always dealing with the choices that are made. We know that about a newspaper. What did the editor choose? Where did they send reporters? Why that story and not another story? What was that? What was the appeal of that, right? So selecting out and selecting for. And the shape of the selection process differs depending on the medium and how information is produced. So we get to the internet and there's this story that's offered to us, right? This dream that we could finally get rid of the gatekeepers. We could finally let go of all that kind of selection process. And we could just live in worlds full of information as many bloggers and video makers and posters and commenters and singers that we could possibly encounter, right? Um, and the main difference is that the ability to make things available to people got very easy. You could post a website, you could post a video um, without too much sort of barriers the business that the social media platforms were in uh, did a sort of bait and switch. They were like, we're, we're the internet. We're just sort of better than the internet, right? It's gonna be easier to find things. We're gonna make it simple for you. All your friends are gonna be there, all the videos you want, all the music you want, but it's just as much a cornucopia as the internet. Um, but they're still negotiating those tensions, right? Shaping what they think you're gonna want, somehow nodding towards what they think is good, trying to uh, you know, satisfy financial obligations. And what they found was that, you know, this is the whole full of shit, right? There's a lot of spam, there's a lot of porn, there's a lot of trolling, there's a lot of violence. And instead of, um, instead of imagining that what they would do is live by some internet declaration that says, no, we should truly allow every single thing and risk a business where you have a hole full of shit. They said, well, we're gonna give you community and the best information and healthy and interesting, and we're gonna make that a selling point, right? So 
one of the things that I would argue is that platforms made moderation a commodity. They said, don't worry, you're going to get the internet, but without the porn and without the violence. Now, A, they failed to do that, but B, that was central to their promise of how you got to be on YouTube, not the web, right? Right. YouTube was like, here are all the videos and we've got a really good search engine. You can find all your stuff and store it and post your things. But it's really just like all the videos you ever wanted, only it's not. So then the question I'm left with is one, how, Sarah's question, which is like, how is this very much driven, not by some beneficial sense of health and goodness, but driven by very fundamental kind of business concerns in the clothing of protecting users, protecting community. But also, if we imagine that on one extreme, you could say literally remove nothing, zero, and we know that there's gonna be lots of spam and lots of pornography and lots of the worst of the worst, or we could say, take down anything that would ever offend in any sensibility, in which case the platform would be empty, right? Would literally be empty. Um, we know that there's, only, there's almost no choice except somewhere in the middle. And what we're fighting about here is not should there be moderation, but it's who's doing it, what are the criteria, what's motivating it, what are the consequences? Uh, and the last thing to say is that we focus a lot on moderation, which tends to be uh, removing things and kicking people off. That's where we, our focus is. But if we're going to be tech scholars and media scholars, we have to recognize that what gets on a platform and what doesn't end up on a platform, removal is just a part of that, right? Algorithmic design, promotion, advertising relationships, all of those things will emphasize some things, de-emphasize others, make them practically unavailable or make them entirely unavailable. So the discussion we're having now is, you know, should Twitter kick off Trump? But the, the discussion as scholars, I think, should be... Um, let's understand how these platforms that promise to be in the middle intermediaries, but not at all in the middle, they were going to get out of the way and let all of us talk, in fact, shape what we see in all sorts of ways, right? And moderation, meaning the removal or the, the extraction of things that are seen as harmful is like one big piece of that, but not the only piece. I do want to just go to, to Kate and then to Jamil on this general kind of opening question, the way you see it. And maybe Kate, um, given that you're so focused right now also on, um, you know, this latest iteration of Facebook's, um, you know, approach to moderation specifically, uh, maybe also for you to sort of say how you see these thing historically in, in the direction it's going in. Well, like my history is shaped by, by Sarah and Tarleton. And I like, will say that like with, I mean, they like Sarah when I was Sarah was one of the only people that when I went to go look this up like way back in the day and I wrote her an email and like I reached out and like I read all of her stuff and everyone said that she was the person and that was like it and then like Tarleton I found him accidentally he came to give a talk at Yale where I was doing my PhD and he was like literally like I was like oh my god there's one other person that I've met that's like lot like in the midst of a thing we were doing like slightly different projects but I feel like it was very collaborative and like good natured and like always and so this is like a nice community to build on but I just want to say that like everything they've said is correct to varying degrees you can draw analogies and lines at any type of level I guess I would just say that like what I'm seeing increasingly is a real frustration in and I think you'll hear Jillian York saying this at EFF as well is kind of a real, uh, it's really like, it's underscored how much some of these platforms and some of these companies have brought to to um, really, to, to areas that really were badly in need of kind of these types of mass democratization and mass amplification tools, and that they have used them to their advantage in a lot of ways. And, um, and that, 
at the same time, we have to allow that. And I don't want to like, it's really easy to like kind of rattle off a list of bad things or good things um, that the, that the, the platforms have brought us. But it's the reason that this, all of this is hard is these are not actually rattle offable things like bringing mass democracy to an entire country or like at least mass amplification to escape state censorship is a really huge deal. And like, that's, that's like a good thing that the internet has done for us. Has the internet enabled like non-consensual pornography and incredible amounts of bullying to the extent that people kill themselves? Like, of course, like these are terrible things. I, I also think that panels like this tend to draw this and I understand that this is like the nature of it but I would think that we all agree to various extents that none of those things should happen we just disagree and like maybe the mechanics of the best way to address them in the immediate future and like I feel like that's a point that's frequently lost in these debates it's not really sexy it's like you have to be anti-tech or pro-tech or take money from tech or not take money from tech. And I just think that this is like a much more thoughtful way to think about it. And so I agree with everything that that, that Charlton and Sarah said, and I think that their work is absolutely invaluable. And it's also invaluable. I think the biggest thing for me right now, and I, um, and it's funny because I'm teeing up you, Jamil, um, to talk about the First Amendment. But I was going to say that like the biggest thing that I'm seeing is that people are really not are thinking about this from that. Like there's just such a frequent perspective from the U.S. and not expanding this to other jurisdictions and how these rules would apply in other democracies and how we're going to draw the same lines in other quote unquote democracies and like kind of like expect the the private companies to carry water in this sense, um, not just with like regulating what we see, but like regulating like our entire political discourse and the information that we have about kind of the, the people who are running for office. And so I think that this is kind of where we're going. And I guess that is tied at the moment, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, to the oversight board, which is hearing Trump's suspension. So... And I'm sure we'll get more into the oversight board, um, you know, as we get into this discussion. And Jamil, she she did touch up that um, I saw you tweeting earlier about some conversation you were having with uh, Dahlia Lithwick at Slate around um, the idea that the, the First Amendment smushes everything. And yeah. the you technical know what? phrase, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it does seem to smush this this conversation a lot. Um, and you know, in general, uh, kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about about the the way free speech is understood in this conversation around content moderation, moderation, either rightly or wrongly, what you wish the conversation perhaps was, as opposed to what it is at the moment. But then also just to add one more layer to keep in the back of your mind as you you answer, it, you know, it's a very American problem to some extent. Maybe just also uh, pontificate on why or how the First Amendment has shaped social media as we know it and how that's impacted the rest of the world. Sure. That, that's a really... Big question, and I, I I know I'm not going to do justice to it, but let, let me just make, make a few kind of minor points. So so one, one maybe it's just worth backtracking a little bit and stating something that I think has been implicit in what a lot of the other panelists have uh, said already, and that's that these the reason we care so much about content moderation on these platforms is that these platforms aren't just um, you know any companies; they are also as as Kate has famously put it, you know, gatekeepers, uh, and in particular, gatekeepers to public discourse. So, um, you know, Facebook uh, has a huge amount of power over um, who gets to speak in the digital public sphere, what ideas 
gain traction in the digital public sphere? Uh, you know, what can be said? And there's, you know, there's disagreement about precisely how much power Facebook and YouTube and the other, you know, big platform companies have, but there's no question that they have a lot of power over, uh, over public discourse. When we engage in political speech now, it's usually on one of these private platforms. And it's for that reason that we care so much about, or that's certainly one of the reasons we care so much about what their content moderation policies are, because their content moderation policies aren't just like, you know, you are at the mall and the owner of the mall says, you know, you can't, you can't shout in my shopping mall. And so if Facebook says, you know, we're tired of people, you know, we're, we're tired of people criticizing the president on Facebook and they say from now on, you know, no more criticism of the president on Facebook, that'd be a pretty big deal. It's not just like some, you know, private business, um, uh, some ordinary private business saying it. It's, you know, effectively the public square is being constrained in that, you know, in that particular way. So, so, so that's why it's a big deal and, and why we care about it. It's true that the conversation is often, you know, very U.S. centric and even worse, very First Amendment centric. And there are a lot of, a lot of problems with that. Uh, the U.S. centrism is a problem because these companies operate not just in the United States, but all over the world. And the U.S. conversation takes place against the background of U.S. institutions. And, and those institutions don't exist or they're very different in other places. Even, you know, I'm Canadian my, myself, and even between the United States and Canada, the background institutions are very, very different. And, you know, when advocates in the United States are talking about when is it a good idea for Twitter to deplatform a public official? You know, often that conversation is implicitly um, about what makes sense against the background of U.S. institutions. But in many other places, again, those those institutions are very, very different. And the answers then, you know, the right answer might be very different. It may make sense, you know, in the United States that Twitter shouldn't deplatform the president unless the following things are true. Uh, but uh, that answer may not be the right one in, you know, Myanmar or India or even Canada, right? And then even, you know, even more problematic, I think the conversation is often um, not just U.S. centric, but First Amendment centric. And, you know, the First Amendment is, you know, effectively a set of rules that uh, dictate uh, how we reconcile free speech with other values, right? But, um, first of all, many other societies reconcile those values in, you know, in different ways and very legitimately so. Um, but even in the United States, those are rules that apply to government actors. The First Amendment binds government actors. It doesn't bind the social media companies. So all this talk about you know, what the First Amendment allows or doesn't allow is only so relevant when you're talking about Facebook or Twitter, which, uh, at least under current doctrine, aren't constrained by the First Amendment. You know, they, they don't have to, you know, if you're, the, if you're the government and you're running a social media platform, then maybe you can't kick somebody off just because, uh, you know, that person criticized the president. But if you're Twitter, you can, if you want to. You know, you can, you can make essentially whatever decisions you want uh, if you're a private company. And so the First Amendment doesn't really do a lot of work in telling us uh, what content moderation decisions the platforms can make. Uh, and last point, you know, that's not to say the First Amendment is, is irrelevant to the platforms, but it's relevant in, in kind of a, the negative sense 
the, the First Amendment constrains the government when the government wants to regulate what the social media platforms do. So in the United States, if Congress passed a law saying Twitter can't um, you know, kick people off its platform uh, for the following reasons, probably uh, Twitter would challenge the constitutional constitutionality of the law in court, citing the First Amendment, and Twitter would likely win. Um, so the, the the First Amendment operates with respect to the social media platforms uh, mainly as a constraint on what the government can do to them and not as a constraint on what they can do with respect to their users. I have a really quick question. This is something that I personally have been wondering for a while, Jamil, and I just like actually wanted your opinion on it since you kind of mentioned the squat, like the, your talk with Dahlia. Do you think, and like the squashing of the First Amendment, do you think that there is, and I don't mean this to sound naive, but do you think that there's like a, do you think it's like a purposeful disingenuous or disingenuous around in that, like people bringing up the first amendment? I'm really not trying to sound naive. It, it does require a, like a fair amount of understanding and of systems and like everything else to understand exactly like the posture that you're coming at from the first amendment. I think it's unintuitive to people when they're thinking about just the power that they're confronted with sometimes. So I'm kind of like curious whether you think that the First Amendment is just genuinely misunderstood or or I mean, the answer could be both or if it's like kind of manipulated as a tool. I, I think the answer is probably both. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people feel like the First Amendment should have something to say about Facebook or Twitter you know, excluding people from their platforms. You know, people feel like these are the powerful, these are the most powerful forces when it comes to public discourse. How is it possible that the First Amendment, which was meant to protect public discourse, has nothing to say when Facebook and Twitter do whatever it is that they're they're doing? And I think that that's a genuine, you know, I don't think people are being disingenuous by, by you know, raising that concern or citing the First Amendment in that context. And I understand the, you know, the impulse uh, to want the First Amendment to apply in some way here. And I don't even necessarily disagree with it. Um, but I think under current doctrine, um, Twitter and Facebook aren't constrained by the First Amendment. And there's really you know, very little you know, room for disagreement about that under current doctrine. Yeah. Um, but there are serious people. I, I just, you know, today, uh, Genevieve Lakier and Nelson Tebby, who are very thoughtful and prominent First Amendment scholars put up a, a post that was arguing that uh, it doesn't make sense for Facebook and Twitter not to be constrained by the First Amendment when they deplatform the president or deplatform, you know, any of their users, that there should be some First Amendment imposed constraint on those the private state action doctrine. Well, they're basically challenging the current understanding of the state action, state action doctrine. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Genevieve. Sorry, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but she's been like spoiling for a fight with the public-private line for a little bit. But we can talk about that later. But <laughs> yeah, that like that's interesting. Sorry, I'm just very was interested to find that out from you. So I, I sorry, I didn't mean to like use up the no, time. For no, that. not at all. And I think Sarah is actually wants to jump in on this uh, as well. I wanted to say to Kate's question, I don't think it's naive. I actually also think that's a fundamental question. You know, there is a very purposeful conflation there that that benefits the platforms, but it doesn't just go to the First Amendment. It starts back further to something uh, that Jamil was indicating, which is the role that these platforms play in civic life and the way in which they have very adeptly and adroitly been able to step in and fill a gap 
particularly in the American context, where public institutions and other kinds of practices may have once existed and have been, you know, really decimated, uh, defunded, uh, sort of their 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 footprint sh shrunk, etc. So, um, you know, why bring up the analogy? Uh, of the public square or of, you know, an other, another kind of public space. For instance, Susan Wojcicki, the CEO of YouTube, constantly calling YouTube a library, which it most assuredly is not in any capacity. Um, you know, why bring up the analogy of the library? Because she really wants these private entities to take up the role within the, the within the, um, you know, within civic life masquerading as if it is the library uh facebook masquerading as if it's the public public square or twitter or any of these 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 platforms and that's the way in which that like kind of um heady potent formula of of the allure of the ability to do and say anything because somehow hand wavy first amendment because also somehow um internet equals do and say anything and emote as you please. Although now we know there's an asterisk by all that. This is, as Tarleton said, internet, this is not. It's the internet is something else. This is a private island, one of many on the internet that has, you know, taken up room and place that would have been potentially in another context, formally been public. And so therefore the confusion starts way back there about what the spaces are for whom and by whom. And that's why people often arrive at the First Amendment issue. I don't think people are stupid for thinking that. I think they've been led to think that. And then when it's convenient, um, it's not that, right? right and right. and the final thing I want to say on this point too, just to go back to having, you know, this, this uh, Canadian perspective present and thinking about, um, you know, I used to be at Western. I don't know if you know that, but just shout out. And, uh, um, and, you know, other kinds of, uh, you know, we're talking about other places in the world that have already come up in the conversation that are suddenly under the regime and the, the, the rules of engagement set by the platforms that themselves not only are American, but they're like this really peculiar American from Silicon Valley. And it's in this way that even as we're starting the debate for the first time on some of these issues mm -hmm. in the US, in the in like places like Congress, and you know, that's going all over the place. But even as we're finally starting that debate in, in Congress, we have these tech firms taking all of these rules and bundling them up and exporting them to the rest of the world um, presume, presuming with great hubris that they're going to fit in work and that they're the best way. And in that way, I want to point out the ways in which these firms, it's not innocuous. They, they, are, they are effectively working as, you, you know, stand-ins, proxies for the United States and its interests, and in that way represent U.S. soft power exported globally. And we cannot lose sight of that in my opinion, I might be fighting with some people on this before the end, but maybe not. I don't know where everybody stands anymore, but um, that is my perspective and and uh, I have, have put it in writing and I'll defend it. What does content moderation look like at Facebook, Twitter, YouTube right now? How many people are involved? What are the hierarchies? What do these organizations look like? I mean, it's huge now, right? And we've got tens of thousands of people involved. What happened with these platforms and many of these kind of user content or user communication environments was they said, because I set it up, 
I think I have some kind of role to play, right? Maybe because I'm responsible, maybe because I want advertisers to hang out, whatever the motivation, but I'm going to try to manage this conversation. Now, in the small scale in chat spaces, when you've got 100 people or 500 people, there are some tools available. I can pull someone aside and say, listen, come on, this is not what we should be doing. Ease off, right? Maybe I can use our interpersonal relationships and say, look, can you just do this? Let's try this, right? Or I can, you know, I can pull the group and say, okay, what do you think? Is profanity part of our classroom discussion? Is it not? But if I've got a thousand people, 2000 people, 10,000 people, a hundred thousand people, it gets more difficult to have that kind of human touch, right? And so one of the things that these platforms did was from the beginning, they were policing things that they kind of thought shouldn't be there while also telling a story that these were open and playful platforms that they were going to let everyone do what they wanted to do. Um, and they find themselves, you know, once they've left a small scale, Facebook was, you know, whatever it was, like eight campuses, right? And there were already problems, but it was just a small group of people who had like an idea of what you do there. And then it was 80 campuses. And then it was, you know, anyone over 13 in the U.S. And then it was outside the U.S. And so that process of continuing that light, responsible role, and again, whether you do it thoughtfully or do mm -hmm. it atrociously, um, means that you have to do one of a couple things. You either have to amass a lot of people, right? Who are, you have tens of thousands of people who are looking at those things. You institute a flagging system that says, I can't look for all this stuff, but maybe my users can. So they can sort of like report stuff and I'll try to look at that and see what should come down, right? And, or you try to develop software that's somehow gonna identify things that look like they might be violations and then either hope you're right or hand those over to the people who are making these quick decisions about what to take down and what to remove. So now you get a situation where, again, building on that little problem of like, I open up a chat and not everybody's playing by the same rules that I imagine they would. A lot of different pathways that could have been taken. But once you start to say, what if I'm the light sort of customer service, I'll just clean up the mess and let everyone keep playing and then I'll ban the bad people, the scale begins to challenge that problem. And now you've got teams of people in other parts of the world, sets of rules that are trying to coordinate their behavior so that somehow it's consistent, software that tries or hopes to identify things like pornography, hate speech, but can't do it uh, in, a, in nearly an accurate enough way. And the last thing is really weighing in on tricky things, right? It's one thing to see like an atrocious video of animal abuse where like, there's not many people who would say, yeah, terrific. But many of the kind of things they're dealing with are, you know, what's the edge of too explicit sexually? What's the edge of too mean-spirited? What counts as hate speech, right? These things differ and where you draw the lines are themselves cultural value decisions. So the, the answer to your question is that in most of these platforms, there is some team in the corporate headquarters who is trying to sort of like set policy, make some of the hardest decisions, uh, and create these guidelines. Yeah. They're, they're sending out the work of doing it to a huge population of moderators, tens of thousands, as well as to users in the sense that we're all flagging and commenting, and then instituting mm -hmm. software that's supposed to identify certain kinds of harmful content and surface that as quickly as possible. And, and this and Goldberg machine is running all the time uh, and not doing anything like what it promises, which is some sort of even-handed, consistent, and problem-free moderation process. Charlton, you've set up very well to go to Kate and, and ask the question about um, the Facebook oversight board, which, you know, um, say what you will about it, does represent world's largest social media networks. 
making an attempt to uh, change the way it approaches uh, content moderation and takes decisions and create precedent. Are we making progress on on moderation? Is is the Facebook Oversight Board a step forward? Is is it going to make things better? I think that I mean I can't. I, I, I wish that I had a crystal ball, um, but I can't like kind of really tell anyone that. I mean, everyone here, I think on this panel knows that I'm like kind of an optimist in this thing. Like I want to believe it's going to get better, but that's like out of a good place, not kind of a naive place. I see us as in this moment of the platforms are going to have to do some serious self-regulation and serious, not just self-regulation, but I honestly think some type of serious participatory democracy moves in terms of like building accountability into their infrastructures. Do I think that the oversight board is that? No, not really, actually. Like, I think that there is a lot to be desired there. There's no direct, like, it's not like any of the board members come from people that are elected. They're just nominated from like general, the general population. You know, there's not really actual type of representational like accountability, but it is like, it is just like the slightest sliver of a crack. And I think that it could be something that in the right hands gets used to the right ends. I've watched all of these documents get drafted and they're documents. They don't really like ever, you know, any lawyer will tell you the documents don't mean anything until they get implemented and they don't mean anything until they get adjudicated. <laughs> and I think that that's true. But I also think that they're not anything until humans get their hands on them and decide what they're going to make of them. It was always a real kind of, frankly, like a real crapshoot of like, well, who is this board gonna be? This right. could easily be a group of figureheads that just decide to cash some big, decent paychecks and phone it in and not do a rigorous job and not read the law and not do whatever and issue one page unreasoned opinions that are like slightly more reason than what Facebook had been giving. And like that could have completely happened. But there might be a move here that like is might surprise us in a good way. And mm -hmm. I, I want to kind of like leave that possibility open. And as Sarah says about brand management, it is all brand management. It'll be a hell of a brand management backlash if this giant colossal $130 million gambit that Facebook decided to to like put its put its money where its mouth is type of thing. And I'll, I mean, all said and done, that's not that much money for Facebook, let's be honest. It, but like, but still it's something. They open themselves up, put all of this stuff into like, including like other like researchers and everyone else like talking about this and then decided not to listen to it, that would be some real brand management problems, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that that's something. And so I think that like, that there is, there's something to kind of be said for that. So that's kind of where I am right now. But I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it is one avenue that we can use, and like one lever that we can use to kind of understand how to like better manage the power structures in these companies. Jamil, um, just to kind of go from there and back to the, the kind of free speech question, um, you all uh, wrote at the First Amendment Institute a very interesting, well, a suggestion or opinion, a comment, public comment for the Facebook Oversight Board uh, around the case of, of Donald Trump, which I thought was interesting because you didn't sort of take a, a view directly on the question that uh, is before the board, but rather on the question of the board itself and what it should ask Facebook to do. Do you think that, I don't know, I, I just opened the question for you to talk about that a little bit and then also about what you wish was the governance structure for making a decision like the case of Donald J. Trump. Well, yeah, I guess I, I am ambivalent 
ambivalent about the the oversight board. On, on, on one hand, I think that it's better than what we had before, which was Facebook making these decisions on its own with no no oversight. And I, I agree with Kate that the people that Facebook has brought in are on the whole, you know, really impressive and uh, not the kinds of people who are there, you know, to do Facebook's bidding. They're there because they care about free expression and more generally about the health of public discourse. And they see this as uh, one way to influence the health of public discourse. And, you know, all of that is a reason for optimism. I think content moderation is less important than uh, many of the other decisions that these companies make. And if you think about, you know, I keep going back to Facebook, but Facebook is, you know, the, the biggest target here. You know, if you think about how Facebook influences public discourse, yes, it influences public discourse by deciding whether Trump or Alex Jones is on or off the platform. That's definitely true, you know, but probably more significant are Facebook's decisions, engineering decisions, and it's design decisions. So, um, you know, Facebook just doesn't just decide that Trump is on or off. It also decides what happens to Trump's speech when it is on the platform, right? So um, when you open Facebook, uh, what you see is dictated by Facebook's decisions. Like what shows up at the top of your newsfeed is the result of Facebook's engineering decisions. Um, you know, even its decisions about political advertising, what kinds of uh, advertising uh, advertisers are allowed to engage in, like how narrowly targeted can the ads be? And can other people piggyback on those ads to respond to misinformation? Those kinds of decisions aren't really content moderation decisions, but they have a huge effect on uh, what content uh, gets traction on the platform. And because the platform is such a big part of public discourse, has a huge effect on what content gets traction in public discourse. And um, even the content moderation decisions, to the extent that they're important, you know, is Trump on or off, even to the extent that's important, it's important in large part because of the design decisions that Facebook has made the day before. You know, um, the reason all the stuff that, that Trump was saying on January 6th was so incendiary, uh, had to do, at least in large part, with the fact that there were a large number of Americans who by that point were kind of uh, you know, convinced that the election had been stolen, et cetera. And they were convinced of those things in part because of Facebook's design decisions that shunted them into filter bubbles and insulated them from uh, counter speech and correcting speech. It's hard for me. I don't have, you know, I, I can't back up any of that with, you know, with, with numbers. I don't know precisely how influential Facebook was in creating the conditions that made Trump's speech so, um, you know, so, so incendiary. It seems to me that those engineering and design decisions were probably more important uh, overall than the content moderation uh, decisions. And so what we tried to do in our comment is get the board to try to use its narrow authority over content moderation as leverage to get Facebook to do more with respect to design and, and, and engineering. I, I just want to nod to um, the reality of the life of a content moderator. So the individuals who are actually made to do this work. Well, Justin, I'm going to behave badly as a, as a respondent because um, while I waited, I got to queue up a whole bunch of comments and I'm going to make them all. I'm sorry, not really sorry, but I'm going to make them all because then I'm going to, I'm going to come back around. 
this is what I think about mostly in any way in general, my take on what is an individual decision about an individual piece of content or an individual isolated incident. What is the take on that decision? I'm actually almost completely disinterested in it because I believe that those kinds of granular minute decisions serve to detract from asking tougher questions to Facebook about what the the politics and principles of Facebook are. Because if you ask them, they cannot answer that. And I've done so many times, Kate was there, one of them, and I, you know, just the crickets went through the room. But what I can say about content moderation uh, in aggregate as a practice and as a, um, as as part of the apparatus of control that that Facebook exercises through all of its component parts, including functionality, including as Tarleton was uh, uh, acknowledging himself, the algorithmic manipulation, including a whole host of things, right? All of those, th all of the decisions it makes synthesize into making Facebook how it is and what it is now. Which goes to one thing that interestingly, we sort of glossed over, and I don't know if it's a presumption that um, everybody already thinks this way in this course, or we just sort of dove in, but you know, the issue here that is fundamental or that is the guiding principle on all of the things we're talking about, all of the market decisions, all of the, the content moderation decisions, all of the uh, functionality decisions, et cetera, and so forth, is the profit motive, right? It, these, this is a company that's trying to generate money and not just a little bit of money. And so this goes back to the whole, the whole problematic metaphor about somehow being a public institution uh, in, in a space of, um, of, the, of the public good and, and somehow, you know, serving, serving a role that is divorced from what it's actually doing, which is essentially printing money. Okay. Like there's, I mean, it's just like a it's like a fire hose of, 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 of revenue being generated. So when we think about decisions around content, it's not simply a moral decision. It's not simply a decision about even as I was alluding to what does the advertiser want? There's also another element, too, which is how do we get eyeballs and keep eyeballs on Facebook? And so sometimes those decisions have to do with how do we allow for material that just straddles the line of the rules, just is just allowable because there is a pretty significant portion of the populace that wants to engage with create and share material like that. So you have to also keep in mind this whole thing undergirding the entire, the, you know, Facebook is not a charity. Facebook is a, a business, it's in the business of, of generating revenue, of providing value to its shareholders, et cetera, okay? So, so that I just wanted to get off my chest. Um, the other piece about, about the creation of the oversight board. You know, uh, on the one hand, I agree with my colleagues who see this as, you know, one necessary step towards a mechanism for intervention that did not exist before. It's unclear to, you know, as Kate said, there's going to be a PR problem now if they if they don't take on the board's decision and they don't implement it as such, but there's no guarantee and there's also no, um, you know, legal mechanism to make them do that. So, so what I want to point out again is that again, I feel like in lieu of real uh, regulatory 
bodies or a real apparatus, Facebook has created its own. And now it's doing this enough that what I see a series of a building of institutions within Facebook that that sort of mirror the function that we might expect from government, governmental <laughs> level institutions to the extent that Facebook is starting to not starting to just now, but is continuing in its efforts to behave itself like a sovereign nation state that has its own, now it has its own judiciary. And I can tell you that when it engages, it's engaging on the level of the highest level of government in each place in which it operates. It is engaging and meeting at that level. That's what where the conversation and the, the register of the conversation is happening. I agree that, you know, esteemed colleagues are on the board, they're gonna do their best, but in a way it, it represents to me another form of capture that has been part of the problem all along. As to the matter of uh, the conditions for content moderation, operations is where all of the rubber meets the road, where all of the stated principles and claims and promises, uh, et cetera, are, pu are put to the test. And at Facebook, the way, the, one of the places in which that, that testing process happens is through implementation of policy. And the way policy is often implemented is indeed through content moderation. To think about the labor conditions under which people do this work for Facebook is important in and of itself. It can stand alone as, as an issue to be addressed. And I think that's certainly was my first order concern when I went into my work. But secondarily, it is one of many cut-ins by which we might question, analyze, come to know more about the firm just in the way that other scholars cut in at different points and places and ask similar questions. What is the nature uh, you know, of the algorithmic sorting and prioritizing of news? That's a cut in too that will lead you directly in. You can, you can address that question, but suddenly you're in deeply into policy decisions within Facebook, all the way up the chain to the very top. And I, I can tell you that content moderation in terms of operations has gone from an afterthought, kind of a throwaway. It's it's sort of like the place you don't want to work. It's the place that um, you know operations in general and content moderation in particular is a low status job within Facebook itself and within most tech firms. Uh, again, I need to 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 speak to the economic incentive for why this is. Uh, when you think about a company like Facebook and where it might. Uh, seek to generate its next revenue. It's doing things like entering new markets, and it's it's it comes from things like creating new functionality or uh, reasons for users to come to the site. This kind of thing. Content moderation to them, in their mind, is a cost center. It is not generative, revenue wise. It's just a thing that drains money, right? There's no they don't see any uh, return on investment there. I would argue that there is one and you know, it's a little harder to put yeah, on a balance sheet, but 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 there is one, but this is how they've typically seen it. They just see it as a cost drain. One of the things about tech firms that is important to know is that again, ideologically, they are committed typically to a school of corporate thought that has to do with being something called lean or agile. And right. it has to do with being having a having a small footprint relative to the 
to the uh, impact of, of the firm. So in the case of Facebook, you know, when they go to investors, when they, you know, when, when institutional and other investors look at them, when others look at them for, you know, to kind of evaluate their, their worth, they look at something like that, that ratio of, okay, they have this many employees, but mm -hmm. look at what they're doing and gen generating, right? Now, suddenly right. they've determined that they need a, a, a legion of content moderation because why we're at what two, 2.7, I don't, I don't remember, there were 2.7 billion users doing stuff 24 by seven on the platform, putting stuff in, saying stuff, you know, recording themselves, live streaming, doing all kinds of stuff. The platform cannot just relinquish control. So it has, it's had to grow the content moderation apparatus uh, accordingly. And other demands from governments and from elsewhere on the platform keep getting put into right. the content moderation bucket. So now here we are sitting talking about this now, and we have a situation where the ratio of full-time Facebook employees to what is a typically uh, contracted, subcontracted out, third-party laborers working as content moderators around the globe to be almost one-to-one, -one, if, not, if not exceeding it. In other words, if Facebook were to directly hire all those people, they would, would double, double, wow. double yeah. in size. And then that, would they be lean? And what would it say that that 20, you know, that 50% of their uh, workforce had to be on a cost center that represented problems, which is right. what that looks like. Right. So what these workers have to do, again, they're typically, as I just said, they're typically contractors. They come in, they're not expected to work forever at Facebook. In fact, they're frequently considered fairly disposable. The, the working conditions now are typically in a call center type environment. So it's quite austere. Um, you kind of go in, you have to, you have your proximity badge, you leave your phone out in a locker, you can't take any personal items with you. Um, and you go and you sit in front of a couple of screens and there is a queue that feeds you uh, user generated reports about uh, bad material or more and more frequently now, uh, proactive uh, moderation done by uh, by machine learning tools that go out onto that onto the platform and scoops up stuff up that it thinks is bad and it comes back and has to be vetted by these workers. As you can imagine, in, in such a stream, it is an incredibly high pressure job. It's very stressful. It puts people in the the twin uh, <laughs> the twin positions of of both being practically bored to tears. Uh, at the same time, being interrupted in the middle of, you know, just nonsense, you know, false reports and things that aren't that big a deal by something horrific that interrupts them without warning. And they do this over and over again. You want to know what Facebook and other kinds of content moderators see? Think of the worst thing that haunts your nightmares, an image, a, a, a thing you could never stand to see. That's what they see. Over yeah, and over again. Ever again. Yeah. Yep. And I don't like to, you know, what as part of my yep. kind of uh, ethical approach to the work, I have never once asked a Facebook or any other moderator, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? Because why re-traumatize re them? But right. it inadvertently comes up. It inadvertently comes up. They eventually kind of tell me something. And as I was interviewing workers uh, over the past 10 years and taking their stories and following this, this labor as it be became 
clear that it was being outsourced not only throughout the United States, but into Europe and then into parts of East Asia, places like the Philippines, um, to India, uh, all kinds of places. And, you know, sort of like the lesser quote unquote states in, in the European Union. So places like Poland or, or Romania or Ireland, which has favorable tax a tax haven for these companies. It was clear that even when the workers denied that there were any like ramifications of, you know, psychological ramifications, or they would often say things to me like, look, I can do this work and I can take it. So you don't have to see what I see, like, but I'm good. And yeah. I'd be like, okay. And then th that same worker later in the interview would say, you know, since I took this job, um, I'm really drinking a lot at home alone. And I really, I don't even want to like go out with my friends anymore because when we go out to a bar, all we do is talk about what we're doing at work and I just don't want to share it. Right. So they're, they're like, you know, withdrawing socially in one very, very painful and personal comment that one of the workers made to me, he said he was sitting on the couch with his girlfriend and she was trying to kind of get intimate with him and got close and they were in, you know, just in a private moment at home and all of a sudden he had an image flash before him of something he had seen at work that day and he just shoved her away, stiff armed away. You know, of course she was that, shocked. And that's trauma, right? That's yeah, trauma. Yes, trauma. Yeah. And when, yeah. he, when she said, what's wrong? He said, I was never going to tell her what the thing was that I saw right. in my mind because it was so horrific. So, you know, the trauma that is, yeah. that is being created, secondary trauma, we might call it, by being on the receiving end is one outcome that's damaging. Another yeah. one, maybe even more insidious and worrisome, is when these workers become desensitized and inured. And then they they are no longer any good to the company because they're not thinking like a regular person. They're thinking like a burned out content moderator who says, well, maybe that blood and gore isn't that bad. As we rounded out this conversation, I asked the panel to talk about the future and what ideas they think will create a better internet. I mean, I, I would, I'll start, which is just kind of due process. And I would say that people are very, one, I think the, one of the main reasons people are upset right now with platforms is not understanding the amount of power that they have over them and um, being angry about the lack of power they have to hit back besides the kind of classic like vote exit loyalty is like not, voice exit loyalty is not enough um, in this space. And so as a single person, like as an individual. And so I think that there will be that kind of level of accountability in some way. And then, and yeah, I think we might actually see a lot. I hope that we preserve the ability for these platforms to diversify because I don't know if that's through anti-competition or other types of means, but I think that like there is, the more that we can kind of allow there to be different avenues for people to voice their opinions, both we're going to get dissident opinions, but we're also going to make it be so that people have to be less traumatized with dealing with that, both on the back end of, of this type of content and on the front end. We're so stuck now because I think in some ways we ask this question and we imagine Facebook as a thing we're supposed to fix, right? Mm -hmm. and, and when something has gotten this large and is this established and it's hard to imagine just saying, let's chuck it and start over again, right, realistically, um, we, we, the, then the answer is, I agree with Kate, like we have to think about process, we have to think about transparency appeals. I mean, it's all those things where we go when something is enormous and it's having consequences for a number of people who can't make the change themselves, we have to have 
a, a democratic process that's going to answer to those concerns. But I would add to the question, right, that if we think about moderation, it's not just Facebook and YouTube, it's also every site on every scale that is making these similar decisions. And so for that answer, when it's not at the scale of these massive platforms, I think we can also ask questions like, you know, the, the promise of the internet wasn't just every information unencumbered, it was also building the tools for people to build community themselves. Right. I really like Chris Kelty's phrase, recursive publics. This was the dream of like open source communities. You don't just build software. You also build the principle by which a group can build something right and govern themselves. And that seems so that sounds naive when you go like, oh, shouldn't Facebook make it so we can all govern ourselves like it's too late or it's too big or whatever. There has to be proxies for that. But it doesn't mean we can't ask that question about what it means to provide tools to govern, not just mechanisms to govern on other people's behalf. So I think it's both questions because we do have to deal with the immense power that these mega platforms still have, but also these questions happen in very small scale places, platforms that will be big, but aren't yet, right? Like, and the chance to imagine building governance tools, not just imposing governance. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a two-part question. Okay. I'll say that kind of briefly. Yeah, I agree that, you know, we, we use, we continually use Facebook as the, the, the object under discussion constantly. So that's one thing. I think also there's a huge market upside, honestly, for those individuals who want to create new, new imaginings of spaces that are not predicated on the Facebook and other big tech, big social models, which you know, made their kind of kind of cast their their lot in when they decided to obfuscate and and deny the role of of human content moderation in the first place, which they did for years and years. It was only in about 2016 and 2017 that they were starting to speak openly about it and and not deny it anymore. And so, you know, that market upside would look like probably like smaller, uh, uh, maybe even a niche or interest based services or places that might put the so called moderation apparatus in a different role, such as a curation role or a guidance role or a supportive visible role, people that you could actually see and know this is you know, you'll find this on someplace like Reddit, but it's not really implemented strongly in in most uh, in most social platforms. Um, so I think there's room just in short for smaller niche services. And I think there's a room for reimagining the role of a so-called content moderator into some other, um, actually perhaps even valued position in the community. The last thing I'll say is that some 40 years ago, there was uh, the at Berkeley, and in Madison, Wisconsin, where I'm from, there was the birth of something called the slow food movement because people were trying to respond to and rethink industrial food and, and practices and, and, and restaurants. And they, they birthed the slow food movement and the farm to table movement and so on. So I would just say there's lessons to be learned from the past and there's um, new ways of imagining in the future. And what I would, Facebook and, and others have only been in this position of power for 15 years and it's a yeah. really short period of time. And you're in a position to think through and think new and uh, they don't have the market on imagination. So I'll leave it there. Um, Jamila, I think, I think that means we're gonna give you the last word. I'm not sure how much I actually have to add to that. I guess the, the only thing I would point out, uh, I mean, I definitely agree that, that you know, one, one possible public policy response to some of the 
issues that we have discussed so far would be you know, effectively breaking up Facebook. But two things about that. One is that there might be trade-offs to breaking up Facebook. You know, what, um, as terrible as uh, Facebook can be for all the reasons we've already discussed, Facebook size makes it uh, in some ways better position to address some of the you know terrible content issues that most of us would want Facebook to address. If you just had you know 100 different platforms instead of Facebook, not obvious that they would be better at dealing with the you know the the problems we've been discussing. And then the other thing is just that there are different ways to break something up, right? So one way is through you know antitrust uh, actions that, for example, force Facebook to divest Instagram or something like that. But you know, another way would just be uh, interoperability mandates that allow other people to build on Facebook's infrastructure, or um, um, you know, a, a more extreme version of it would be turn Facebook's social network into a public utility and allow other people to build on top of that, you know, that network. Um, but different ways of sort of breaking up, you know, breaking up Facebook. So even to say that you know Facebook should be smaller or would be better if we had multiple platforms, you're still left with this very complicated public policy question of, well, you know, break up in what sense? I want to uh, thank this entire panel. Um, this is such a complicated topic and all of you uh, bring to bear so much expertise on it. Thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, pleasure. it was a real honor. It was so thank great. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.